0: I'm Andrew Schwartz and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about this week's events in Washington with President Zelensky of Ukraine and what is the future of Ukraine's funding coming from the United States, we have with us CSIS's Max Bergman, who is the director of our Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. Max, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back. So Max, this was a busy week. President Zelensky came to Washington, met with leaders in Congress, met with the president. What do you make of the visit and how's it looking for funding for Ukraine?
1: Well, I think, Andrew, one of the things I can say is that as someone who's following Ukraine assistance very closely in the events of the war in Ukraine and Russia and Europe, I frankly don't know, because right now this is about border policy issues. This is about the president and Senate Republicans negotiating over a domestic policy issue that has become linked to Ukraine security assistance and also Israel assistance. So this is all part of the one big supplemental package. We're waiting to see if there's any breakthrough in Senate talks that are going on right now. And there's increasing concern, I think, amongst Democrats on the left that the president may make concessions or has already expressed willingness to make concessions that they find unacceptable. And I think the thing that everyone has to be reminded of is that if the Senate comes to a deal and passes a supplemental, which would include Ukraine funding, Israel, but also dramatic changes perhaps to U.S. border policy, that then still has to go to the House, which then would likely have to wait until next January. And so there's still a lot of uncertainty about whether Ukraine funding will happen, even if there's a deal before Christmas between Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats. And talk about what that means for the Ukrainians. So this is what is, I think, so problematic about how the supplemental is being dealt with, is that right now Ukraine is fighting a war, but how do you plan and fight a war when you don't know what ammo you're going to have in three months' time, in two months' time, or throughout all of next year? And the Russians, we know, are likely going to bombard Ukrainian cities with long-range cruise missile strikes, drone strikes. They've been building up, their are, arsenals and are likely going to unleash. So will Ukraine have the air defense munitions to be able to protect their cities, to protect their infrastructure, to protect their populations in their military? It's a big question. And then will Russia go on another ground offensive? And then will Ukraine have the artillery necessary to sort of fight that back? Huge question. So the thought that we were you know, in some sort of stalemate after Ukraine's counteroffensive didn't succeed the way we had hoped, the fact is we're not in a stalemate because the Russians are going on the offensive. Our gearing up to really bring this war to the Ukrainian people. And the fear is that Ukraine starts running out of air defense munitions, starts running out of artillery. They have to ration, and if they have to ration, well, what you do in a wartime situation is you protect your military and you let your cities get bombarded. That's what happened during the Blitz during World War II. So we could see a lot of Ukrainians die this winter because the US hasn't passed funding and because Ukraine no longer can be resupplied. And let's be very clear. The president doesn't have some magic wand that he can wave to still get Ukraine weapons. We are very careful about what we allow our presidents to do when it comes to providing U.S. military equipment and U.S. weapons to a foreign partner. You know, Iran-Contra almost resulted in, in Ronald Reagan's impeachment. You know, the president doesn't have the money, doesn't have the authority right now to keep supplying Ukraine, and that's a huge problem for the Ukrainian forces, the Ukrainian public, and for European security. So this is really dependent on Congress, as with most things when it
0: comes to the purse strings. This is a matter of national security, but yet Congress is really calling the shots here.
1: Yeah, no, this is fundamentally requires Congress to act. And you Congress did something really big in 2022, which is that they increased the amount of money in accounting terms, the amount of equipment that the president could basically take from the US military and give it to a foreign partner in Ukraine. From $100 million a year, a million with an M, that's what it normally is, to 14.5 billion. And so that has been the lifeline, the IV drip from U.S. military warehouses straight to the Ukraine front lines. But as of October 1st, that money reset, and that money reset back to $100 million. And there's still some money left over, administrations being very careful at how they spend whatever they have left from the previous fiscal year. But it's running out, and when it runs out, it's gone. And that is... I think, a huge problem. And that's why we see Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin at his, you know, annual Colin question and answer session and Colin show, sort of licking his lips and saying that he feel very good about where they are in the war because of Western weakness. Okay. So Zelensky comes to Washington this week. He goes up to Capitol Hill.
0: What does he tell them up on Capitol Hill?
1: I think what he tells them is that this is essential for Ukraine's survival and Ukraine's security. This is the session that I think the administration was hoping to have with the Senate a few weeks earlier before there was the initial vote on the supplemental. And what happened is that that session, which was gonna have very senior U.S. national security leaders talk about the dire state of the war and the implications for Ukraine, well, it became a shouting match over U.S. border policy issues. And they, I think, smartly pulled Zelensky from having a virtual appearance at one of those sessions because they didn't want Zelensky to talk to Senate Republicans and have Senate Republicans then vote against it. So I think this was an important visit. Zelensky could highlight the need But what's interesting now is that you don't hear a lot of talk about Ukraine right now when you're reading the press covering kind of congressional machinations. This is very much about kind of the internal Senate Republican politics with how that's going to react with the House Republicans, but also the 2024 election and what this would mean for Biden's reelection terms and congressional Democrats getting upset with the president making compromises. We're not hearing a lot about, you know, what's at stake for Ukraine. And that's inevitable because when you suddenly get tied in with one of the thorny domestic political issues there is, well, that's where the inevitable attention is. So it's pretty concerning. But I mean, the hope is that this sort of all comes together in one grand deal that then is announced and that then the House ends up approving shortly in the new year and that Ukraine funding is then happens, as does Israel funding. Has Zelensky given the
0: Biden administration and the Congress an indication of what is the drop dead time here? When are they really going to become extremely vulnerable? without USAID.
1: I think they would probably want to keep that fairly quiet. But what you can tell is when you look at U.S. funding packages for Ukraine, we are now down to the bare bones. We are providing air defense munitions and very little else. And the amount of money being provided to Ukraine now is, you know, we used to have big announcements of packages in the billions. Then they're in the hundreds of millions. Now we're at a $100 million level announcements. And what I think the administration is doing is begun to start to really ration our aid to Ukraine based off of how much money we see left. And that is not a good position for Ukraine to be in, particularly heading into this winter. Given that the situation is so dire
0: for the Ukrainians, what are they doing to mitigate their circumstances? Are they rationing themselves? Are they what are they doing on the ground? I mean, they, they must have to be thinking about this in a
1: completely different way strategically. It's a great question, and I think one of the things the Ukrainians would say is, well, we've been rationing throughout this war. We've always had to ration. But I think what's essentially happened here is a bit of whiplash for the Ukrainians. What they were hearing, I think, from the administration was the administration constantly telling them, no, 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 we're going to be there for you. Don't worry, America follows through. Now, I think the administration really wanted that to be the case. I think they were hopeful that would be the case, but they couldn't guarantee it. But yet we were kind of implying that it was a done deal. So I think over the last month, six weeks, the Ukrainians probably have had to come to realize that, oh, this funding is in real jeopardy, even if there's sort of quiet confidence that it would still happen. So they need to start taking steps to, I think – A, entrench at the front lines, sort of really start digging in. I think they may have waited too long and now, you know, it's cold and the ground is largely frozen. So this makes entrenching very difficult. So they may have waited a bit too long to do that. And now they have this huge, vast front line to defend. So I am sure they are really thinking about, well, what do we do if Russia does X, if Russia goes on the offensive here or there, or how do we defend our cities in in infrastructure? What missile strikes are we just going to let happen to sort of preserve our certain artillery? I've heard of some scenarios where the Ukrainians are starting to put machine guns on the back of pickup trucks to sort of shoot down drones, and that sort of puts them on the right side of the cost curve. So I think we're seeing that sort of thing. You know, the Ukrainians, their ingenuity knows no bounds, but unfortunately, they're going to have to really MacGyver their way, I think, through this winter— and 2024 if USA doesn't come good. So they're, I think, starting to take these measures, but they may have waited too long, in part because they believed in the United States coming through. And it's hard to really fault them there. And it's hard to fault the administration for wanting to reassure partners. On the other hand, we could be in a situation where we really wish we had a frank conversation with the Ukrainians back in August, September about steps they needed to take ahead of this winter. So Max, you mentioned that today, December
0: 14th, we're talking in the afternoon Vladimir Putin had his annual news conference and he said some pretty inflammatory things. What did he say and how much of it is just
1: bluster and how much of it is real? Well, you know, he said a lot and not very much also during his multi-hour question and answer session. I think the major takeaway is that if anyone thought that now that the war is sort of stalemated Well, the Ukrainians and Russians should just sit down and have negotiations. I think you needed to watch some of the clips of Putin talking about Ukraine, talking about their goals and objectives of continuing to denazify Ukraine, of demilitarizing Ukraine, of sort of teaching Ukraine a lesson, and effectively bringing Ukraine to heel as a country. Well, it doesn 't look like russia 's goals and objectives have changed at all, and so the problem with the effort to negotiate or the desire to have a negotiation is it takes two parties to tangle here and and the Russians are, have no interest right now with Vladimir Putin in engaging in negotiations and frankly, the Ukrainians recognize this and also have no interest, so the war is going to continue, and I think what we see is the Russians have every intention of ramping up this conflict, of seeking, and I think for Vladimir Putin, frankly, to reverse the humiliation of the last two years and to try to win the war. So that has not gone away, and in fact, I think you see Putin being very arrogant and cocky, especially given the issues that we are having with passing Ukraine assistance, both in the US and what looked like for a while in Europe, although the Europeans now look like they have come through with aid for Ukraine. So what does winning look like for Putin now? Do we know what winning looks like for him? Well, look, if I were an advisor to the Kremlin, I would be like, well, now is the time that we should send a huge bat signal out there to say, we are ready for talks to end this war because we've gained a land bridge to Crimea. We've absorbed tremendous losses in this conflict. And what do we now expect to actually gain territorially? And we're never going to actually win this war. So why would we keep fighting? But I think from Putin's perspective, the Russian military is now gearing up. The Russian defense industry is now humming. And yeah, our casualties have been high. We can absorb that. And the Ukrainian military is still vulnerable. And if we can take out Ukrainian air defense, we could maybe bring Russian air force into the war, which has currently been on the sidelines. And then we can make major territorial gains and head toward Kiev. And we can crush this nonsense of Ukrainian statehood, of Ukrainian nationalism. And I think that is their broader objective. So I think their objective remains to go to Kiev, to crush the Zelensky government, to install a pro-Russian government that then seeks to eliminate the kind of Ukrainian nationhood. And from that, I think they would go on a massive effort to sort of kill or expel or imprison Ukrainian patriots within Ukraine. It would be very bloody. So I think they see an effort to subjugate Ukraine much the way that they've subjugated the occupied territories that they currently have of Ukraine. So I think the goal is not all that different than it was in February 2022. And frankly, I find that somewhat shocking, but we are where we are. You know, I don't get to pick the leader of Russia. And frankly, no Russians actually get to pick the leader of Russia, but Putin is the leader. And I think he views this as essential to his legacy of how he's gonna be viewed in history. And if he allows a Ukrainian nation to form, despite all his efforts, I think he will view himself potentially as a failure. So I think he views this fairly in existential terms for his broader historical legacy. That makes him even more dangerous, doesn't it? I think so. And I think there will be a sense of cockiness that he was right in doubting the credibility of the West, of the West's willingness to stick to this. And that Russia, yeah, we had mistakes in the beginning of the war, I think you would say. But look, now we're ramping up our defense industrial production. And just like in World War II, you know, we absorbed everything the Wehrmacht and Hitler had to throw at us. And then eventually we got our act together and responded. Napoleon, similarly. So – I think he will view this in the great tradition of Russia absorbing blows and then giving it all their might in response. And I think that's the narrative of how he kind of sees the coming year of 2024 as this is now the Russians going on the offensive and that when Russia goes on the offensive and really mobilizes, man, look out because, you know, it won't just be Ukraine that we take, but it could be Europe as well. So given all that, And despite the
0: complexities of U.S. funding apparatus for Ukraine, at the same time, we're also seeing, you know, today, the EU paving the way for Ukraine to join the EU. And Putin sees that as well. What does that mean in this whole calculation?
1: Well, I think at the very least, the Europeans have come through. They're voting on providing $50 in assistance to Ukraine, so a very significant amount. It's over three years. It's largely on the economic financial side, so very important to Ukraine's economy. We've also seen the German government sort of announce a continuation of security assistance despite the fact that they have real budget issues. So in some ways, the Europeans came through on the aid side, and then they've also agreed to open up ascension talks with Ukraine, which is sort of the final step for Ukraine to join the European Union. And before anyone gets very excited about this, this will still take a long time. But what this does is allow the EU and Ukraine to begin negotiating sort of chapter by chapter in the EU's lengthy body of law to start going through and start really bringing Ukraine more in line with EU law and EU systems. And so that's a really important step, I think, particularly symbolically for Ukraine. However, it did come with a very significant price. And this is, I think, leaving many people in Brussels with a sense of unease and disquiet of whether they actually did the right thing. And that price was freeing more than 10 billion euros to Viktor Orban's corrupt government. Viktor Orban of Hungary basically held the EU hostage, held Ukraine hostage, and said that he wasn't gonna vote for the funding for Ukraine, or for Ukraine to move forward on EU membership. And it turned out the EU was willing to sort of pay the ransom. And the problem with paying the ransom is that there's gonna be future hostages that are taken by Viktor Orban, and there'll be more ransoms to pay. And the other problem is that this was, I think, a real test, because the EU was finally using its financial leverage, which is incredibly substantial, for democracy and rule of law issues. And what it turned out is there's an easy way out where if you're willing to block everything – well, the EU will eventually come around and cave. So in some ways, it's a great day for Ukraine, maybe not the best day for the European Union in democracy and rule of law within the European Union. And I think that there's going to be a lot of questions asked. Ursula von der Leyen is the president of the European Commission, leaving a lot of people within the EU very angry about how this was dealt with. And it limits the EU's credibility to deal with this sort of hostage-taking in the future. And Max, what's the big takeaway for the Biden
0: administration this week after these events? The Biden administration's obviously dealing with other foreign policy issues at the same time, Israel, even, you know, Guyana, for instance, with Venezuela. What is the takeaway from the Biden administration? What are they saying following Zelensky's visit?
1: I think what they're saying is that we got to get this funding through because, look, this isn't just about Ukraine. Right. If the funding fails to go through, yeah, Ukraine will be on the ropes. It'll be terrible for the Biden administration. Ukraine is a major part of their kind of foreign policy. Be bad for Biden in 2024. But for the broader credibility of the United States, if you're an ally and partner of the United States around the world that is dependent on the U.S. for your security, you are looking at this and are somewhat terrified. Because here is a country fighting for democracy and freedom against one of America's longest adversaries of the last hundred years. You know, Russia has been probably our fiercest adversary. And we're going to suddenly tie their security assistance to our border policy disputes, and you are looking at them and be like, I don't know if I can rely on America at all for my security. And I don't care if you're Taiwan or Korea or Japan or Australia or countries in Latin America that rely on the U.S. for anything. You're looking at this and have to question whether America will be there for you. Whether, you know, your foreign policy issue, whether you're Taiwan, will the U.S. provide aid or will Democrats sort of demand the child tax credit in return for that assistance? And that's then complicating I think how U.S. foreign policy works in a way that makes it really hard to rely on the United States. So I think this is a big test in this coming week or weeks of not just U.S. support for Ukraine, but the U.S. as a reliable ally and partner globally. And that has huge ramifications for countries around the world and for the United States writ large. So I think the Biden administration is looking at Ukraine aid through that lens as well And is incredibly concerned about the potential failure of funding.
0: Max Bergman, thanks as always for coming on the podcast and giving us a lot to think about. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Andrew.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.